and welcome to this week's episode of Everybody Fits Podcast. And this week we've got the lovely Emma Green on. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's absolutely, it's our pleasure. I can't wait to get chatting to you. So we'll go straight in. I know you've got an amazing background. Um, I'm, I'm basically going to let you introduce yourself because you've got so many letters after your name. You've got such an interesting story. I don't think I could really do it justice. So just for everybody listening, do you want to tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I always struggle a bit with this because I feel like there's a lot of strands to kind of what, what I do and kind of where I've come from. But I mean, I generally describe myself, um, you know, by day as a kind of a researcher, writer and editor. Um, that kind of takes different forms. Some stuff I do um, on behalf of companies and some stuff is kind of just me doing my own thing. Um, in terms of my background, definitely a nerd. Um, <laughs> I studied um, psychology at undergraduate level, loved it, went on to do a master's in health psychology, which is like the psychology of kind of physical health. And so the relationship between mental and, and physical health um, is quite a lot around sort of behavior change sort of quote unquote stuff there lots of public health kind of stuff um enjoyed that and then was kind of really keen to like do my own research because at undergraduate and master's level you're learning about what everyone else has done and it's not really until you get to phd level that you get to do your own large scale kind of piece of research um so did i'm um, a phd in um, health psychology um that actually focused on young people um, living with diabetes, so both uh, type one and type two diabetes. And it was um, a lot around kind of how they integrated the sort of management of that condition into their daily lives. And sometimes the challenges that that could bring with, you know, these were um, people between the ages of like 16 and, and 25, right? So they want to kind of do their normal thing, be a young person, go out drinking, going out, you know, e eating whatever they want and not really having to think about stuff. And, you know, diabetes, at least the traditional way it's managed, is about, like, counting carbs and being, you know, very careful about alcohol consumption and stuff. And so it was kind of the, um, yeah, I guess how they how they manage that kind of emotionally and the sort of well-being and how sometimes it was a bit of a balancing act between what might be optimal, quote unquote, from a physical health point of view and what was optimal for actually their overall well-being and them being kind of happy and on, on their own terms. Um, and then following my PhD, really enjoyed it, but decided academia was not for me. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of hoops that you jump through when you do your own research. You've got to convince someone it's worth funding it. That involves lots of paperwork. You've then got to kind of jump through kind of ethics things and go through all the specific things you're going to do with participants. Then if you do your study, you're then, um, you know, pressured to publish it as soon as possible. So you're then approaching different journals, you go through peer review, which is where two academics largely tear your work to pieces and then you resubmit it. They, you know, it's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a long process. So um, I decided that I still wanted to be involved in science in some way. And so kind of after my PhD went into more kind of journalism really. So writing um, articles, you know, using kind of science and, and the skills that I'd learned in kind of reading and critiquing research. Um, alongside all of that, I've had a kind of long-standing interest in health and fitness, um, and as you probably get, get gathered, I like studying. So during that time, also trained as a personal trainer, um, and that was largely more from my own like knowledge. I wasn't necessarily that interested in working with people one-on-one, -on -one. and if I've never worked with people one-on-one -on -one in a gym setting, I've done more like 
online kind of almost like counseling styles of coaching where it's we talk about people's relationship with with food and exercise and their and their body um and so yeah I guess that brought me to kind of where where I am now really where I do my fingers in a few different pies um I sort of you know read write and kind of research around the fitness industry and I guess all of my work really aims to like help people establish a kind of a healthy relationship with like food exercise and their body whatever that happens to look like for them and I think a, a part of that is also people being provided with science which I think can be really overwhelming and really intimidating actually and so hopefully my work makes it a bit less so and that gives people a bit of a like just one tool in their toolbox that they can use on their journey to establishing hopefully this lifelong healthy relationship with 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 those things alongside their their own kind of lived experience um which is also hugely valuable so hope that all made sense yeah <laughs> wow. absolutely well that, at least now everybody knows why i let you explain everything <laughs> <laughs> that's very impressive that's um and and it, it's such they're such fascinating subjects everything that you've you've spoken about i personally find them all fascinating and it's it's not surprising to me as to why you'd want to you know base your career around them um so yeah I'll let you talk Amy <laughs> so obviously I know you're quite open with your own experience of eating disorder how did the whole study in psychology and learning about that the way that you approach that diabetes study with the the outlook on the mental implications obviously mm. you you could see that reflected in your own experience in your own journey so how did studying psychology impact your own relationship with your eating disorder and how did then enter in the fitness world because it'll have all it'll have been a lot I imagine yeah for sure yeah so I guess just in terms of time frame so I started struggling with my eating disorder when I was 14 so it was kind of before I had started studying psychology I wasn't diagnosed though until aged 18 so there was a kind of a time when I was clearly struggling but also a lot of denial which is you know I think quite common in, in eating disorders along with you know diet culture normalizing a lot of the disordered behaviors that you know I and other people with, with eating disorders were engaging in um yeah, it, it was interesting when it came to studying psychology, in a way, I think it almost um, exacerbated my own denial because it was like I had this idea of like them and us. So I had this quite like we, you know, and especially the way we were taught about eating disorders, like the, here are the symptoms. This is kind of what it looks like. And a lot of it was kind of reinforcing a lot of the stereotypes about about eating disorders. And to be fair, I do fall into some of those. Right. I'm in a small body. I'm white. I'm middle class. But the, still the way it was presented, I was like, I don't that I don't think that's me. Like that doesn't fit with I don't see myself as a person that fits those symptoms and, and characteristics the way that they're being described. So I think it strangely did add to that. And I think somehow because I was studying it it was like in a book or in a lecture or whatever, it almost like allowed me to distance myself almost more from it, if, if that makes sense. Um, and that was maybe part of a, I don't know, a coping kind of strategy as well, maybe at that at that time. Um, 
so it was yeah it's weird for me to look back on it now because I think like why didn't it actually make me join some pieces together and actually you would have thought it would lessen the denial because I would think oh yeah that makes sense that's what I experienced oh my gosh that I you know should go and sort of get help and but it it didn't um for, for me at that time um and I, I you know it, maybe it's also about how it was taught as well like it was you know again this list of symptoms it wasn't really about individuals and the all the different ways that kind of eating disorders can show up and even I mean it was just really focused on anorexia and bulimia and as we know most people don't have one of those two eating disorders um or if they do they don't necessarily neatly fit into all the characteristics and you know it's everyone is a an individual right with without an eating disorder right it's not you can't just measure someone at this that these are the criteria and it you know it doesn't look the same for everyone um but I did during my undergraduate did um eventually kind of seek help and then get a diagnosis um and it was actually something uh, completely unrelated to my studies my a, f- a friend of mine was studying in London I was studying in Birmingham she it was a friend from school she came up to see me and we spent a weekend together and after the weekend she just sent me a text and said like you seem I think the way she said it was like not yourself or, or it was words to that kind of effect I'm just checking or okay and I don't know if it was a case of timing or who it came from, a combination of the two. But that for me was like a real like penny drop moment. And then I did go to GP and then the process of getting a kind of diagnosis and informal kind of treatment um, for, for my eating disorder. Um, and then I guess with the kind of recovery process, that was also what I guess really opened my eyes to diet culture and realizing actually the way that we talk about you know mental health physical health and things it it's very um it's often like you know we're trying to put things in in boxes right we're not looking at the kind of big picture of of things and actually a lot of the behaviors and things that are supposedly quite quite normal or even seen as aspirational actually seem quite quite disordered um and that was something I really opened my eyes when I went on to study at my uh, my master's was very 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 weight centric and I found it really interesting I had a, a lecture from this researcher who was like known as quote-unquote obesity um expert and I looked up her background after the lecture and the lecture she'd been talking about all these strategies right for that you know to kind of mitigate that again quote-unquote obesity epidemic which were the kind of usual things um that you know are recommended she thought people should be weighing themselves every day counting calories but the stuff we're all told is great and it, I just I think in that lecture I'm thinking actually those are things that like I'm still working through like not doing I'm being told that they're a problem because I'm in a thin body but what it would be fine if I was in a fat body and actually that's what I should be doing like it can't be that doesn't, that doesn't make sense and it, it stuck with me especially because I looked up this researcher and looked at some of her past papers and what was really interesting about her background is she'd started out studying eating disorders before she transitioned into studying quote-unquote obesity and so it was literally just transplanting the behaviors right so literally behaviors that are in eating disorders seen as a problem again if you you know a sort of a quote, quote, low bmi or whatever she was then actively recommending them as a way to 
you know, for, like make people less fat, basically. And it, it was, I just was really shocked that you could you couldn't see the kind of you know the the kind of cognitive like dissonance you know and it was um I think from that point onwards I thought actually I think there's there's a bit more to this and I started sort of challenging a bit more not always directly in lectures and things like that but just reading you know reading doing a bit more reading on my own learning about things like the social determinants of health which again I wasn't really presented with you know health was pretty much oh it's how much you move and you know what you eat and actually there's, there's so much more to health than roughly we think 80 to 90 percent of your health outcomes are the social determinants of health which you don't have any control over right people that have control over them are kind of you know the, it's a wider level right it's about you know policy and structures and, and systems um and so i think that also what kind of you know interested me in studying like kind of you know fitness as well because i'd had a sort of interest in that and i thought i you know i think actually it'd be interesting to study it but also I think maybe I could with my you know my studies and also my own personal experience bring something maybe different into a kind of the fitness space because I could again see a lot of these disordered sort of behaviors and stuff that were I mean very common and sadly still are in the fitness industry right there are a lot of people that are tracking their macros and stuff you know chained to my fitness pal um you know exercising in a, you know a sort of a way that's um you know very regimented they you know struggle with taking rest days you know all, all these kinds of things we we see and I think I, I felt like my you know hopefully that you know again if I had a sort of you know personal training qualifications that would add add to my kind of hopefully you know credibility and things as well that maybe I could draw on the things I'd learned um you know and the things I was still continuing to to learn about to hopefully you know in some ways challenge some of the norms you know that, that exist in in the fitness industry and I think we are starting to see a positive shift um but it's still there's a lot of work that's left <laughs> that's left to do I think um you know I'm reminded sometimes when I see things you know pop up on my explore page of like how much how much more work there is to do right I'm very selective with who I follow and and I think the people that follow me all very kind of like-minded and you can think oh like great everyone's you know moving their bodies for you know for fun and they're not worrying about calories and any and then I'm just from my oh no there are still so many people that really that really are and so many trainers that are still um practicing that kind of approach with with their clients right um so it yeah. is I definitely and fluctuate I, between feeling optimistic and feeling really like disillusioned <laughs> yeah I think I think it's really difficult as well, like we're in this space and what you find is a lot of trainers have either transitioned into a place where they have this unhealthy relationship with food. And then there's the other side where a lot of trainers get into it because they have the unhealthy relationship with food. Yeah. And actually, I remember personally when I, I started training for my PT qualification and um, I remember my parents saying to me, but will this not worse than the way that you are? And they were concerned that it actually would make me worse. But I feel like, and this is probably the thing that would sum you up, knowledge is power. And the more mm. that we know, the more that we learn, the more that we're in, we have that ammo there. Um, but also the problem is that unless you're out there and you're looking for that information mm -hmm. and you've just got the baseline information it's it's like what what you said 
even with things like eating disorders, it's anorexia, it's bulimia. There's there's no like there's no nuance to it. There's nothing in between. So if you don't fit into one of those categories, then of course you're fine. Why would you see these things reflected in yourself? It's totally normal for you to go and eat noodles made out of water or mm. rice that is made out of a vegetable, which if you're that way inclined. I've, I've openly said I'm quite a fan of the cauliflower rice oh, I, but I, don't, <laughs> I don't believe that it's like I'm not going to go out for a meal and deny myself some sticky rice in an Asian restaurant because it's not cauliflower but some people would do that and I think it it's if the, the messages that are out there it's so hard to navigate diet culture now yeah. It is. And I think you're right as well about people's backgrounds. And I think, I mean, I was definitely in, I referred to it as like macro land, right? Where like I was focused on, you know, what, what, you know, fits and plugging everything into, you know, an app and stuff. And I think also if you actually come from a disordered background, that can actually seem like a really flexible place, right? Because if you come from somewhere that is even like, you know, potentially more extreme than that, right? Where maybe, you know, even more foods were, were limited or maybe you didn't you don't didn't feel like you could go out for a meal at all or you know things like that I think actually this almost this macros thing can seem actually that does seem flexible oh I'm not focused now on like losing weight now it's about I'm trying to gain muscle and you know what I mean so I think it it, people can seem like oh this is this is fine like because their 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 comparison is is a sort of a disordered place I think and you do I definitely see it amongst coaches there do seem to be a lot that do have this kind of background and I don't know you know maybe they're drawn to studying in in the fitness industry I don't I don't know or maybe yeah I don't know the fitness industry particularly seems to you know attract those 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 kinds of people and certainly it's not everyone but I do notice that quite often I think that that people do have have that kind of background and I don't think it inevitably is I mean it's great to hear that your experience was actually a positive that you kind of learned more and that was sounds like a really positive kind of springboard um which is is great and I think you know you would and I hope you know one of the sort of strands of my work is like with um, F pause, which is you know fitness professionals against against weight stigma, and a key kind of long term goal of that is actually changing the fitness qualifications so that actually personal trainers are getting a much broader um, grounding. They're not just told, hey, people have two fitness goals: losing fat and gaining muscle, and this is how you do it. You know, actually learning about you know these broader ideas about health. Um, you know all the different all the different factors that influence it how little control an individual actually has over over their kind of over their kind of health um, and you yeah. know focusing on physical health and well-being and movement for you know for for kind of enjoyment and also all the barriers that exist you know in in the fitness industry you know if you're if you're um, fat or you have another marginalized identity the fitness industry can often be really really unwelcoming and you know, I think it's really, really important that we challenge that both, you know, for clients, but also for fitness professionals so we get more more diversity within within the fitness industry. And hopefully then that will also help to, you know, um, Im- improve um, things, you know, and, and allow people to actually have a, a good relationship with, with exercise rather than this quite disordered one that I, a lot of people sadly still have, which is, you know, reinforced by coaches and gyms and challenges and all the things yeah. out there right that you know tell people to just crack on with with what they're what they're doing you know 
I think that I think that's the thing that the really really sad thing I picked up on when you mentioned about studying the psychology and and how it distanced you from your eating disorder and and it it's really quite sad because I was hoping and and almost half expecting you when Amy asked you the question about you know how you coped I was hoping that you'd say oh it deepened my compassion towards myself because it helped me understand and it, it sounds like it just completely did the opposite and that's really really quite worrying and it, it's it's you know with the fact that health being obviously so multifaceted and even when you're studying psychology and eating disorders being taught on such a it sounds like such a basic level that to the fact to the point where you when you actually have an, an eating disorder and you're looking at it and you're like oh well that's not me it's so it's so disheartening and yeah. sad and frustrating and all these yeah. emotions that are like oh <laughs> yeah and I didn't I didn't mention it and I don't know if I've talked about it that much before but it did that did also translate almost into treatment because when I went into treatment I then had that and I also felt like you know what I studied this stuff so I, it was almost a bit like a power play thing right I was like oh I've, you know I like I had CBT which is a kind of go-to cognitive behavioral therapy for anyone that's not familiar which is kind of challenging your thoughts and behaviors supposedly around food and the idea is you identify these irrational thoughts generate a rational one and you sort of you know over time kind of continue to do that and the idea is that that helps um but anyway I having studied that I was like well I sort of like I know that do you know what I mean like I, I know what you're trying to do you know there was that kind of dynamic to it as well and again that might be also possibly my own personality as well I don't want to kind of blame it all on that I think I can be a bit um sometimes with you know if I'm being told what to do I don't I mean I guess a lot of people don't like being told what to do right but you know I think the the combination maybe of that in my personality and having studied it I, I felt like it was in some ways it made it harder for me to truly commit to recovery and do the mm -hmm. kind of hard messy work that's actually is actually needed and to put my trust I think in in a kind of professional where I felt like oh well I've got you know some of your qualifications so I'm not you know like like and so yeah it in and maybe it's not I don't know I haven't really spoken to anyone else about this maybe for most people it's a positive thing and when they study it, it is something that allows them for the you know the pieces to kind of click in together but for me anyway it it certainly didn't um but certainly the recovery process for me was hugely helpful in opening my eyes to all the stuff that was going on and made me really really passionate about the work that I do now because although eating disorders are still relatively rare a lot of people still have a disordered kind of relationship with with food and and with exercise and I think had I not had an eating disorder, I don't know that I'd be as passionate about it um, as as I am now. Because I think that, you know, yeah, everyone deserves to have a really, you know, a good a good relationship, um, you know, with those things. Because you know, your body is something you, you know you're gonna, you know, inhabit for, for you know your whole life, right? It's not you know, so it's it's really really important. And I think being aware of how much it took away from me, you know physically mentally socially I think just makes me 
want to try and do everything I can, you know, not only to help anyone that is in that situation and maybe talk about mm -hmm. the all bodies recovery, which is a kind of another strand of my work that's popped up more recently. Um, but you know, just just helping hopefully people not get to that place, or if they're if they're mm -hmm. feeling stuck, you know, hopefully maybe there might be something that I share that that enables them to kind of have a tool and maybe feel a bit more empowered to to challenge maybe some of the things that they're they're being told or, or that they believe. Or, mm. So tell us a bit about um, all bodies recovery. What what yeah. does that? Yeah, so that, um, yeah, that came from um, a rant I did. So um, back in February, uh, I believe it's the last week of February, it's Eating Disorders um, Awareness Week in the UK. And um, large organisation in the UK, um, FEET, um, do a lot of work around that time. And I'd had previous dealings with them because their uh, current position is that they think that the quote-unquote obesity epidemic is a problem needs tackling and promote that dealing with it quote-unquote should involve people you know counting calories going on diets you know doing very disordered things <laughs> right mm -hmm. and um e even for for people that have eating disorders their position is that you can essentially either recover and do those things, right? So if, you, if you're fat, you can sort of try and lose weight and recover, or you can recover and then you can lose weight, right? And for me, as an eat, as an eating disorder charity, that that doesn't make sense as a position, right? It just it just doesn't make sense to be advocating that that people should be, you know, that if it if it's thin, if you're a, you know thin person, that's an eating disorder, but if you're a fat person, that's a healthy thing to be doing. Like that doesn't make sense and then just posted on my stories and just said it's you know I've continued to be I think confused and <laughs> annoyed by an eating disorder charity that that has this um perspective and it's not that I, you know I want to be clear it's not that they are the only eating disorder charity that hold this position but they are the largest eating disorder charity in the UK by miles because although there are other charities they tend to be regional ones um anyway following this um had um a DM and then a long DM conversation with um, Jeanette, um, my said nutritionist, um, who said, oh, you know, I, I, you know, really, this doesn't make sense, does it at all? Like, let's do something. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, right, yeah, great. Let's, you know, let's channel some of these frustrations that we have. Um, so we wrote an open letter to, to Beat, packed it with lots of science as expected with links to the, the full text of the studies so they could read them for themselves we weren't saying just take our word for it we talked about you know social determinants of health the lack of evidence that long-term weight loss is achievable um you know the the um, factors around you know people with eating disorders can exist in bodies of all sizes and actually the physical health complications of eating disorders are the same regardless of your body size right because what is harmful is the you know the exercise and the and the food behaviors that it's not about you know weight may or may not change as a result of those things um and then we were very encouraged um they said we'll meet with you discuss your concerns um we never had that meeting um because they cancelled and then <laughs> um over time we've um struggled to get much out of them in terms of 
a meeting or a response to the letter and the concerns they keep on saying oh we're thinking about it we're doing this we want you know they said oh we want some more examples of where you think we're going wrong send them links to things that said press statements with these kinds of things but they very clearly laid out their position they have a document as well about all the strategies that they think are a good idea to again deal with the quote-unquote obesity epidemic um we also started collecting lived experiences as well um because something i think you know this is something particularly Jeanette has uh, brought brought into our work and i think i've now increasingly see as important is people's lived experiences right science is, is one tool but actually a lot of science is on a you know a very small group of people right it's often on again white people from western countries middle class people right you know cisgendered people it, it, it right it, it's a very select group of people and so we were collecting these lived experiences and one of the things that came out was a lot of people that had experienced weight stigma in eating disorder services and just weight stigma if anyone's not familiar is essentially bias and discrimination against um you know people um, in larger bodies and the kind of larger your body size the more stigma you experience and sometimes that can be overt people often think of it as like fat shaming that's only one very specific you know example often it's a lot more subtle than that right like being told to lose weight or being told oh well, you can recover but then we're going to focus on weight loss you know, or being struggling to get a diagnosis because you you don't present in a thin body, you know, or being like, oh, your behaviours are actually fine because you're not quite and quite underweight, according to BMI, you know, those those kinds of things. And they all contribute to to people, uh, you know, often continuing to, to struggle with their eating disorder because they don't get the support and help that they need. Mm. Um, we then expanded a little bit beyond beyond just weight stigma because we realised that people with other marginalised identities also struggled so um you know people who people who are trans disabled people people with chronic conditions people with uh, uh, you know things that aren't the kind of was assumed to be the norm in eating disorders right um and so we then decided on the name kind of all bodies recovery because we're really passionate that everyone that is struggling with an eating disorder should get the appropriate, you know, trauma-informed, individualized, weight-neutral <laughs> um, support that that they need. Um, and, you know, one of Beat's things is they have a directory where they signpost people to, to help. But given their stance, I'm not sure how much you can trust necessarily that what those individuals are practicing. So we want to try and do our own thing, right? Where we can hopefully signpost individuals to people that have specific expertise in um, the characteristics that are relevant to them, right? So if they're neurodivergent, they work with someone that has expertise in that and has, has worked with people who are autistic and have ADHD and things, you know, or, you know, are, you know, in a, in a fat body and have, have worked with, with other people, you know, who are in larger bodies as well. So that's, yeah, one of the key goals. Alongside that, we also want to um, encourage um, eating disorder professionals to continue their training, continue their learning, right? Because, again, the current existing qualifications often fall quite short. Again, often only focusing on these two eating disorders and you learn, you know, about the kind of the stereotypical representation of them. And so we also want to be able to provide training so people can learn about all the different characteristics a person might present with and actually know how to approach that in their in their work um kind of with them really and you know 
again, like I said about the lived experiences, we want to continue to do that and to share those um, because something we we realised in sharing them is that it's actually really helpful for people to realise they're not alone and for people to hear stories that resonate with them. Um, we, we did a series of, we collected written ones, but we also did a series of Instagram lives where we spoke to people. And we had so much positive feedback from doing those, um, both actually from the people that were sharing their stories, where they would just say, you know, it's so nice to be listened to, but also people that were watching and were commenting and were just saying how kind of, you know, affirming it was to hear that someone had had their kind of, their kind of struggles as well and mm. was, was in kind of the same boat. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's evolved kind of over time. It's something that, again, I'm really passionate about with, you know, because I, again, was very lucky with my eating disorder, right, because, again, I fit a lot of the stereotypes. Yes, I was stuck on a waiting list for a while, but I got the treatment that I needed, you know, I through the NHS. I didn't have to, you know, pay for, well, I, I did partly because of the long waiting list, but, I, you know, if I'd waited long enough, I would have got, you know, my free kind of NHS care and stuff and I realized that you know a lot of yeah the reason I did was again because I have that that kind of privilege right you know mm. and uh, you know I want everyone should have have access to the support that they need regardless of what their you know physical characteristics are and we want more eating disorder professionals out there that are you know that can offer help because I think there are loads of fantastic people out there that, that can help and you know hopefully we can also showcase them and um so yeah it's been great working working with Jeanette as well you know she's doing loads of work on her website and stuff which we're going to be like launching soon and you know um also Jeanette as well as like you know uh, who's in a fat body as well so has that kind of lived experience which again is fundamental to to our campaign and I think you know together um we're yeah really passionate about hopefully making a really sort of positive change um and you know slowly slowly um helping make you know improving eating disorder kind of treatment for for people and you know um empowering hopefully you know professionals to to be able to help help these people who really who really need it um so yeah so it's 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 it you know it's um it's hard like definitely the, the work um but it's so it's so rewarding and um yeah I feel so happy that Jeanette sent me that message because it could have just stayed as a rant right I didn't yeah. I, you know I, like it easily could have and so I'm I'm so grateful that you know she said like let's do something and it and it kind of snowballed from from there really um so yeah, the power of uh, Instagram DMs, I think. hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, I find it really interesting that you say that it was Jeanette that that talked about having the lived experience. Just because you're saying it's your lived experience that's made you so passionate about, you know, everything that you do, yet it's someone else that, that highlights that to you. So it's it just goes to show that as, as much as we can have passion for the things that we do, sometimes it's great to have that outside voice there because yeah. it, it is hard. I, I'm very, I'd say I'm, I'm quite similar to you in, in that my lived experience is what makes me 
passionate about my work and not wanting not wanting other people to have that lived experience um but we need to sort of encompass all perspectives and sometimes we we do forget that and and when it that through your research is is amazing because that is what you do I'm always really interested as to how you come up with the next thing to talk about because you cover so many different topics so many different subjects and it seems like it's always so interesting and it's something that I want to know about but it's something that I never even considered sometimes that I wanted to know know about but then you'll start talking about writing about it and giving information about it and I'm like oh actually yeah I want to know and then it'll it'll push me to want to know more so how do you even come up with the topics that you talk about yeah so I have like it's funny on my phone I have like in the notes bit of my phone just like Instagram posts and like anytime I think of one it goes it goes to my notes so I have like this really long thing and it will come from anywhere like sometimes it's what I'm listening to a podcast um I mean sometimes it will literally be on social media right I'll like I'll, like I mentioned you know the explore page or whatever early I'll see someone that's like I don't know talking about their step tracker and think I think all right okay I'll, I'll write about the you know and um, like I've done a post before um quite a lot of uh, comments about the you know 10,000 steps a day which is often advocated to kind of go to and actually there's not a lot of science behind it um in fact not any <laughs> behind it at all um so yeah it comes from all different kind of places I mean I'm I'm really just interested by science I you know it is a kind of a bit of a hobby like maybe all the podcasts I listen to are like science-based kind of podcasts I will just periodically read stuff on like Google Scholar things I'm interested in I'll be like type in like keywords and things like intuitive eating or you know things like that and just see what the kind of latest stuff is um yeah and I just I really enjoy reading it and then hopefully just like sharing it as well because I think people are often interested in in science but I think like I mentioned it can seem a bit overwhelming and intimidating like when you read a paper it can seem like it's a different language and you know scientists don't always help that they can write in quite a convoluted way and use a lot of jargon and and stuff and I think you know science can be a really good like springboard to have really good conversations about about stuff um and it can you know a bit like you said sometimes think oh that, that is interesting I'm going to go and read and and learn a bit a bit more about that so I think it's a really kind of powerful powerful tool and you know I definitely find on Instagram like I, I learn so much from the people that comment you know I I hope that you know like you know people learn as much from my posts as I learn from everyone else kind of sharing and often people do share their lived experiences and are really open and I feel really um humbled and honored that people feel feel safe to do that um you know because that's not an easy thing to do in any forum let alone a you know sort of public forum um so yeah it's something I you know I, I really enjoy and I do I mean it does take a lot of time like on average most of my posts take between three and five hours to put together <laughs> in terms of the the research um because I make sure that I have thoroughly read every single paper that I cite because it's very important anyone can quote something anyone can read an abstract um but it's really important to to read it thoroughly and although I will summarize it I've you know I have read it in full to to be able to to kind of do that um so yeah it's something and I think you know going back to the kind of lived experience in in a way like 
although yes my lived experience has made me passionate about what I do there are already a lot of people like me that are given a platform right you know in the fitness industry there are a lot of other kind of you know thin white cisgendered <laughs> people that that have these you know big big kind of platforms and you know the same kind of eating disorder spaces and the world generally right and so I don't I, mean, I don't mind talking about my experiences but I don't really want want to center them I want to like it, we should be centering the marginalized lived experiences right and so I think that is something I, I hope to also champion as well I try and you know on social media although I'm posting science and things if you look at my stories say 90% of my stories is resharing other people's stuff because I want people I don't want people to just follow me and read science like that's great and let's have a chat about it but I also want people to learn from you know people with valuable lived experiences to to kind of share as as well so I suppose I see kind of the, the science stuff is like this is what I feel is hopefully a valuable contribution to this space but I'm very conscious that I don't want that to be silencing anyone or sidelining anyone and it's not um it's not more important than lived experiences it's just something that can sit alongside it as a as a tool for for change you know and when it comes to trying to challenge you know organizations institutions and stuff that is sometimes where science comes in particularly that can be particularly useful because sadly not everyone does value lived experiences in the same way like they you know and science sometimes is seen as like oh science is more credible it's the you know and so I think in those kind of instances it can be can be really you know a, a sort of powerful tool but I'm very conscious that I don't think it should ever be the only thing and I think in the past I've certainly been guilty of um over estimating I think what science can do and the space that it should take up in terms of, of trying to enact positive change um, and again love science really passionate about it but it's it is just it is just kind of one one tool I think and you know we need a lot more research on lots of different types of, of people and I hope that is something that will will change as well as more diversity among academics as well um, still a lot of academics are uh, middle class white men so we, <laughs> and we need we need a lot more um a lot more other people um doing this research as well so that we're you know hearing from people across the spectrum that exists in the world not just a small, small uh, i have to say i find it very inspiring how we, we question if you see if you see something it's so easy just to follow the crowd and that's what a lot of people obviously do especially in you know in any industry really but the fitness industry for example the must hit 10,000 steps um for example and actually it's so easy for people to just say well no they'll, they'll just copy it because someone else said it and then that that it just whereas actually you said there's no science to back that up and that opinion it's not even an opinion it's not it's an effect a fact but it's unpopular but mm. it do you get that many people challenging or do you get that much sort of negativity coming at I you do, mm. yeah I do sometimes not a lot and I think 
one of those is thin privilege right which exists in the real world but it also exists in online spaces i think if you look at someone like asha at doctor uk they get a huge amount of, of backlash mm -hmm. even though they are sharing a lot of similar messages to myself so i think that is a big part of why i don't get it um i have had a big blow up in the past um you can bleep out names you don't want to say who it is but lay norton um uh, oh, reposted gosh. one of my slides <laughs> okay fine <laughs> i mean this is all true so you can't come after me for anything but anyway reposted one of my slides on his page and um took it again hadn't really taken it in, in kind of context um and then following that um his followers started commenting on my post, started DMing me, really, really kind of abusive stuff. Um, I had people saying that like, I didn't really have a PhD, I was making that up, that I was being irresponsible, that I was all, all these different kinds of things. Um, and it, I mean, it, it really kind of shook me because it was the kind of biggest um, backlash I'd, I'd had before, like previously it had been, you know, I mean, I've got about 20,000 followers. So it's, a, you know, it's, so, but I mean, compared to his audience, which I'm sure is hundreds of thousands, right? It, you know, I just hadn't had that many people sharing, well, not with that the amount of vitriol they were really. Um, and that went on for, it was over really a week. Um, and after that, I changed some of the controls on, on my Instagram. So now you can only comment on my posts if you follow me. Um, and you can only send me a message. Um, I think if you follow me or I follow you or something like that, there's a there's blocks there. And it's I felt really conflicted about doing that because I don't want to silence anyone. And I'm actually very willing to have a constructive debate with anyone. In fact, I offered to debate Lane, Lane Norton. I've offered to have, you know, to be on people's podcasts before and have a conversation. I don't mind talking with people that disagree with me. I'm happy to be challenged. I'm happy for people to present evidence and we'll have a conversation about it like I'm not you know I'm more than happy for people anyone to challenge what I'm what I'm saying that's absolutely fine and, and to, to disagree right because you know it, it is possible that that you know we, you know you both read the same paper and you will have a different interpretation you know of that and that's great you know let, let's talk about it but I find people are generally not willing to to have that in a kind of sadly often in a constructive format and so I put in those controls really for my own kind of well-being as well and you know again if people want to comment on my posts absolutely fine but you know there are things you have to do first and one of the reasons I thought it was good if people followed me is hopefully then they have an understanding of what I'm about they understand the context where I'm coming from they know my background um, and you know the uh, yeah I guess the approach I take so yeah so now I get even less um because of that um and I think also I don't know I I think in a way people that seem to follow my work more closely at least that stick around are people who are kind of already on board with um you know if we're calling it weight neutral anti-diet you know uh, approach and they kind of are just interested in science and learning more I find people who are, are, you know, not at all in agreement, they sort of like follow me and then all kind of like rapidly unfollow. <laughs> so I don't know what it is about my content and, uh, but I'm not, I'm not 
you know, those people don't seem to stick around. And that's fine, right? We need people at all different, you know, all different stages. And I, I'm sure there are people that are much better perhaps at getting those people who are kind of sitting on the fence, who are like a little bit interested, but they're sort of, you know, I'm clearly not that sort of person. And well, or at least my content isn't, you know, I think it's kind of like, these are the facts, you know, like do with it what you want. And maybe that's just a bit confronting for people that are very new to it. I don't, I don't know. Um, so, so yeah, now, thankfully I get very, very little, very, very little backlash, which is nice. So it does feel a bit safer to post what I want to post. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I don't think anything I post is remotely controversial, but because of diet culture, it can seem like, whoa, that's really radical. Like saying people don't have to lose weight. Whoa. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, um, strange it's, um, it's outrageous to a lot of people isn't it like really really outrageous I think people who are still in that space as well they find it so difficult to hear I remember posting something once about weight loss not just being about how much you eat and how much you move like it's got to do with like I put a plethora of things on but one of them was to do with genes and someone just posted weeks after I'd even put the post on like I'm pretty sure that um even if you've got genes that make you overweight that you could exercise more and eat less and lose weight and I was just like you have missed the entire point of the post but I think you just get to a stage where you just think I'm not even going to engage because what's the point right like they're the kind of people where it doesn't matter how much you try to talk to them, you want to have a civil conversation with them, that's it, that's, that is their point of view, and, and if they want to crack on like that, that's great, because we're here for the people that want to listen and learn and, and want to know more, um, and I think it, it's frustrating, because you know that the information that you're given is, well, it's as right as it can be but they don't want to know so yeah you've just you've just got to let them live with whatever they're getting them wanting to live with but yeah what I think must be frustrating for you in in the research perspective is um there's always a but so there's always something that will prove an argument but but there's always something that will disprove it and especially when you work in with such narrow margins of research, I think particularly when it comes to um, anything to do with women's health, it's so under-researched that you, there's never an answer. How, how do you approach that kind of research? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are definitely topics that we don't know a lot about. I mean, I think women's health, I mean, essentially anyone that's not a cis man, we don't know a lot about, right? We, we don't know a lot about you know, trans people's experiences, you know, trans men or trans women, non-binary people, we know very little about their experiences and anything. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly women's, if we think about, you know, kind of cis women have been, you know, um, 
tended to be neglected because often um, were seen as too complicated because of uh, menstrual cycles. So particularly kind of exercise scientists thought, oh, let's just not bother, like, um, you know, and actually, you know, there are um, specific kind of things. And again, it's not just women that, you know, have periods go through pregnancy, you know, menstruation, etc. Um, but yeah, that is a, an area that's still very much kind of playing, playing catch up in, in the research. We're still you know, learning some things, but like you said, there's such a small body of evidence. I mean, I think the thing is, it's actually just being honest about that. You know, I think I do sometimes post about topics where there's not a lot of research and I will try and acknowledge in the caption that that is the case um, because I don't ever want to present an idea that like, yeah, this is, you know, we've got loads of studies. This is what they all say. Because some of the things I do, there is a, a concrete body of evidence, like, Yes, sometimes there are some conflicting studies, but generally the majority of the studies will, will point in one very specific direction. Um, if there's kind of so little research, I generally don't post about it, but I'm more than happy to talk about it with someone and say, hey, like we just don't have a lot of research, but this is what the studies that have been done suggest, you know, or based on other research, this would be my hypothesis, right? Um, and I think, you know, it, people are generally fine with that like when I used to work with you know people kind of one-on-one -on -one, like you know in a you know some kind of stuff they would sometimes have questions and sometimes it would be the case that they, you know what there's actually just not a lot of research out there you know here's a paper that kind of summarizes at the moment but it is just a bit of a question mark and again that's why people's lived experiences are so important right you know because we don't have the evidence I mean like say a specific example is like we don't really know how things like the menstrual cycle impact on exercise and exercise performance and recovery from exercise. There are some theories around, oh, the hormones are doing this kind of thing at this point. So hypothetically, you might feel less this or this, but actually, and if you speak to people, people have very, very different experiences. Some people are like, you know what, when it's my period, I feel great, I feel ready to smash it up. Other people are like, I wanna crawl into bed with a hot water bottle and a big bar of chocolate and that's how I get through. And so people are very, very different and I think, um, you know, that that is why, you know, hopefully people's own experiences can kind of fill the gaps where where science doesn't. But I think it is also important to acknowledge where these gaps are um, in, in, in the research. And, and hopefully, again, as we get more diversity into into academia, so we actually, you know, have more, you know, women um, in in um, you know, academia that will kind of help as well as, you know, people from all different kinds of backgrounds. Um, because there are some topics where we just don't have a lot of a lot of research um, you know I mean sometimes it'll even be like I did a, a recent post after the about the calories on menus um, thing so anyone listening it's not from the UK um, it's now compulsory for I believe it's restaurants that have over 250 employees so generally that's chain restaurants to provide calories on the menus um, and I did a, a post kind of summarizing the existing evidence on on that and you know kind of in in short basically it, it doesn't change people's behavior who don't have disordered eating it does if they do have disordered eating so um <laughs> not a good move essentially um uh, for you know for a number of reasons um but but that was something where there, there just wasn't wasn't a lot of research so you know i kind of acknowledged that and, and summarized what was out there and it's tricky because i think some areas it's just a case of will kind of wait and as we you know get more funding more diversity etc will happen but also there are some things that no one really wants to study no one wants to fund 
right? <laughs> you know, if there's a big pu public health thing and, oh, we're putting calories on menus, well, who's going to want to actually study, like, what are the, you know, who's going to want to fund a study that says, hey, let's look at the negative impacts of that public health bodies, right, that aren't necessarily want, going to want to fund that kind of research. So it can be tricky if you want to research something that is going against the status quo, right? It's a lot easier to get funding for a weight loss study than it is to get funding for a study where you want to look at, you know, supporting people to engage in, you know, exercise without the focus being on weight, right? It's a lot harder to, you know, to jump through the hoops you need to. So that is, I guess, just an ongoing issue, I, I think, really. It's usually that... the people, the type of people that fund these studies, is it usually... Mm cisgender men by any chance yeah well I mean funding can come from lots of different places um but yeah I mean often in terms of the senior people in some of these organizations and stuff yeah it, it is often going to be be those kind of um individuals um and also you know people that have connections with kind of industry as well and often industries that will also be often dominated by you know white middle class men like pharmaceutical industry for example very very male dominated yeah um etc and so they will be they're big funders of you know weight loss drugs studies and stuff then they can use that to then sell their drugs and stuff so yeah mm. um <laughs> that, that is a big big factor There's so many loopholes isn't there to get through to to actually study something that you you've got evidence from previous studies that suggest xyz but if it goes against diet culture or big pharma, then it's likely that it's not going to go any further, which is frustrating because it just it, it doesn't obviously it doesn't help. It, it just no. makes the situation that a lot of us are in worse and, and keep getting worse because then, yeah, it, it's it's yeah it's frustrating isn't it yeah it is it is frustrating and I think it, it must be very difficult for the academics as well that are kind of wanting to do this research that are also kind of you know surrounded by people who are not like-minded <laughs> and are kind of you know wanting to really pioneer this 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 kind of stuff um and so I mean there are some you know fantastic um academics that are doing you know amazing kind of work out there but um yeah it is it can seem like a bit like a, a brick wall and you know one of the things I mean I'm um like you know post about all different kinds of studies in terms of my background I've always been more of a qualitative researcher which is kind of like basically non non-numerical kind of stuff so often where I'll be doing interviews or you know things like that and actually that kind of research is also really hard to get funded because it's often not seen as like as serious as kind of if you want to you know administer something where you're going to do some fancy stats at the end of it and produce some numbers and a chart and all of this kind of thing but actually the qualitative research is just as important right because numbers can tell you the what but they can't necessarily tell you the why can they and so it yeah it is I mean and this is again one of the reasons that I kind of left academia because for me I want again the work I do hopefully in a small way to you know add you know advance social justice and hopefully in a very small way make the world a fairer better place for everyone and I just felt in academia there are just so many different kind of barriers that prevent that from happening um and that for me was was really really frustrating um and I also saw that 
sometimes the academics who were very good at jumping through the hoops, actually, I wasn't sure of the value that their research was always adding because they were trying to like do stuff that they knew would get funding, right? They were doing stuff that they knew they could get a paper out of. They were trying to rush to finish the study so they could start writing up and pitching it to journals as soon as possible. You know, they were, um, journals often have quite tight word counts so they would kind of not be, you know, that careful necessarily about the stuff they were kind of leaving in and leaving out and just kind of lopping off what, you know what I mean? I just felt like there was kind of, and again, I don't, I don't wish to discredit academia generally because there are loads of fantastic academics that are doing great work, but I just think the system doesn't serve individuals or wider society <laughs> in the best possible way because research should be about learning about new things about you know and always trying to you know fill gaps right like the end of any research paper is always talking about this is what future research should do and it's <laughs> you find so many papers that they're all saying this is the future research we should do it's like well let's do the future research right let's set up systems and structures and things to actually fill those gaps rather than just doing loads of studies that kind of say say the same kind of thing and yes there's a, a role for replication and in, in you know in terms of being more more sure about about stuff right you don't you know one one study is great but you want a body of evidence which is why the kind of science essays and things where I, where I talk about a topic I often talk, um, cover systematic reviews which are like reviews where they've included loads of different studies right because then you can be a bit more sure about what you're saying when 20 studies have told you the same thing compared to just to just one but um yeah there's definitely a lot a lot that does need to a lot that does need to change and I think you know one of the one of the things I think would also be great is if there was better connection between people who are practitioners and academics as well because sometimes academia can also be a bit of a kind of ivory tower and people don't have the experience of actually working with individuals and say like with you know say like exercise science and stuff I think that's particularly valuable right if you've got people that actually work with you know athletes or recreational you know like you know people who are participating in exercise of a type to kind of feed into the research and you know feedback these are things that my you know clients tell me or I see in my clients like let's research that because that's another way you can also find out more different topics and stuff to research do you know what I mean it could be a ground up yeah. thing rather than just a sort of top a top down thing you know um I feel like that's that's an issue in in most industries or like yeah. not just between research and academia I feel like like we've had this conversation about even healthcare and nutrition and fitness and it, like everything in an ideal world everything would merge and amalgamate and we would have all practitioners from all different walks of life working together but it's almost like everyone's scared to leave their their little box or their little bubble and work together and yeah. and that's what I do love about when you when you were saying about people you know messaging your dms and instagram that is how we are part of this community now of fitness professionals and nutritionists and dietitians and who were all on the same page one great thing that probably came out of covid is the fact that we've all found each other and and want to work towards similar goals and 
and we can do that now be it on a very small scale in relation to the industries that we work in but hopefully that's something that will spiral and these are the kind of things that we can influence in the future um yes. which is what you're doing you've got you to to put it in in no other words I mean you've got your fingers in so many pies I don't even know how you do it I don't know how you do it at all <laughs> Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think you're right. Like that kind of collaboration is is really important. And in a way, like that, I guess, is one of the things that enables me to do some of the different things that I do. Because I don't do any of these things on my own, right? With All Bodies Recovery, Jeanette is doing a huge amount of work, you know, with FPAWS. That is something that I run with, you know, Becky and Amy, who also work really, really hard with it as well. And that's, you know, I think that's the nice thing when you work with people, you can do so much more than you can do on your own. And you can do it so much better because everyone brings with them different kind of skills and strengths and ideas. And, you know, you can, um, yeah, you know, I think do do things in a, in a much better way if you than if you were to do them on your own. And hopefully also just carry them on for a lot longer as well, right? Because I think if you try and do too much, I'm certainly a person that has tried to do too much by myself, you burn out really quickly and then you give up and then you don't kind of get anywhere. And I think with these things, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not naive. We're not going to change the fitness industry overnight. But I think over time with more and more people on board, you know, like yourselves and other, you know, amazing like fitness professionals that are, you know, really passionate about this work and already doing it with, with their clients and keen to kind of, you know share with with other people and and learn and it be a really kind of you know collaborative thing um that i think over time we can make these kind of slow slow mm. changes and the people who aren't on board will start to you know see oh okay like this this mm. is a thing like this isn't just a phase or a fad or whatever like there's you know yeah there's some science behind it and actually there's people that are you know making money with their clients doing this thing it's viable right it's not you know and so I think that would actually be a really powerful way of um, showing people that. And like, you know, going back to like you saying, some people when they're not ready to hear it when you're speaking with them one-on-one, I think actually showing people how it's done can actually be a really powerful thing. Um, and that's something that, you know, me and Jeanette and I work with All Bodies Recovery have tried to transition into, because we have had a few, let's say heated exchanges with, <laughs> with individuals and, um organizations and not that we don't want to still I think there's still a role in holding organizations to account and challenging them particularly you know if they're in these positions of authority but actually you can send a really powerful message in what you're doing and people will see that and that the work can also speak for itself as well so I think that's um something that hopefully is is kind of encouraging and I try and remind myself of when it does sometimes seem like you are going against a brick wall with um, fighting you know diet culture and the sort of I think the um the anti-diet sort of community it it is it's obviously very small like literally just before um we went live with this I was saying to Amy sort of most people that work within the anti-diet industry the anti-diet space kind of know of or know each other and I think that we're all so so passionate so deeply passionate because it's affected us on deeply personal levels as well um and it's like amy said before and and you said it's we don't want other people to go through what we've gone through we want 
other people and, and you can see so much wrong and it, it just fires that passion. And I think that whereas in the diet industry, there's a lot of competitiveness and everyone's like against mm. each other. Well, not everyone. Whereas I feel like the health at every size anti-diet, we're all kind of like, there isn't that, I don't feel at least, and it's not in my, in my experience, there isn't that deep competitiveness. It's that, right, let's all come together and let's fight, let, let's fight against this Ooh. big machine that's that's making people and has made us feel absolute rubbish. Um, and I think that's really empowering. And I, I think that it, we're just gonna get stronger and stronger and stronger because of that, because we're all kind of seem to be coming together, um, which I think yeah. is quite nice. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you're right. I think you see that with like client referrals and stuff where someone will approach them and say, you know what, this isn't my expertise, but I know someone would be great for you. And, you know, I've certainly recommended people like to send like, you know, fitness classes and things like that and stuff. So I think you're, I think you're right that I think that that is, and it is, re it is really nice. And I think that helps keep you kind of feeling positive, um, mm -hmm. you know, ab about things and, and the progress that hopefully that we can all, all kind of make make together in in this space and hopefully it will mean that some people won't have to have gone through the difficult stuff before they get here wouldn't it be great if anti-diet was the default right someone does yeah. their PT qualification and they start doing that rather than I think pretty much everyone right they did you know their own diet culture stuff then they did it with clients and then sat on the fence for a while and then eventually came over to the dark side right so but wouldn't it be great if someone doesn't have to go through all those things and eventually that is just the the default mm. and I think that I think we will get to that stage you know I'm optimistic of, of that I think and we will because I, if you you've got to go back and look at the fact that diet culture has only been this huge thing for what 60 70 years so what did they do for the hundreds of years before that like we've we've created this we can get rid of it I absolutely believe it and with people like you Emma doing the work that you're doing and and people like Kim and and myself like shouting and, and giving other people a platform like you say because it's not just about what we can tell people or what we can say it's about giving other people a platform and the opportunity to to go against the grain and to not feel like they're wrong for doing it for you know enjoying movement because they just enjoy doing it rather than because they have to get the 10,000 steps in or to be able to go out for a meal and not have to look at the calories on the menu because they're going to choose what they want to eat and just to have positive experiences and be happy rather than living under the shadow of all of these rules that we've suddenly been subjected to it is positive change and that's all that we want we just want positive change yeah. and, and pe people to live rather than and feeling miserable all of the time um yeah. but I think the work that you do and the difference that you make is absolutely incredible. Um, I, I don't know where you get the energy from, let, <laughs> let alone anything else. Um, and I really just can't wait to see what you do next or read what you do next. 
or hear about what you do next because I've, you're gonna make a huge difference Emma you really are oh that's so kind thank you so much that's um yeah it's really nice to hear I try and I think carefully about um, where I spend my time and energy. So I hope I, I hope I do it well. Um, and, you know, I'm always like really keen for like, if people, if there are things people want to know about, like, let me know again, like, you know, if you hoops you've got to jump through, I think to DM me, you might have to follow me first, but you know, like <laughs> let, let me know that's, that's fine. And, you know, always happy to chat as well. Like on my post, the comments is always quite a lively place. So don't be afraid to jump into that conversation as well because I love I love hearing from people and all different kinds of views and if you disagree with me totally fine let's have a <laughs> let's have a chat about it like that's that's more than welcome so um yeah I hope um I hope people feel they can they can do that because I I want to always seem like yeah I'm kind of you know approachable and stuff um so um yeah do do get involved if if you feel so inclined <laughs> I would we will pop your Instagram link into the show notes and um obviously I imagine you will get a lot more followers but um <laughs> no trolling no trolling we don't want that <laughs> yeah keep it nice please yeah <laughs> thank you so fun. much for coming on Emma it's been an absolute joy talking to you oh you're so welcome thank you so much for having me um yeah, yeah. it's always nice chatting with people um, who are kind of like-minded and interested and, and passionate about this stuff as well so thank you thank you it's been absolutely fascinating I literally could talk to you for hours but <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we will let you go and, and enjoy yeah. the the rest of the heat wave yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> you too yeah cool yeah thanks thank again so much for having thank me you. and uh, yeah speak with you soon I'm sure <laughs> bye bye <laughs>